You're listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations, and I'm Rick Enlow, and I'm here with Dave Hillis. And uh, Dave, we're talking about Eucharistic leadership again, and, but I think there's probably some folks who are just now jumping on board, so uh, give us a little overview of what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely, Rick. We uh, now for, um, gosh, a good period of time have been talking about what we describe as the Eucharistic shape of leadership. And the backdrop to this is that when we think about the city as a playground versus a battleground, um, the, the very practical question becomes immediately, would seeing the city in that way have something to do with the shape of the leadership that is trying to make that city like a playground? Mm -hmm. And so for leadership foundations, our perspective on that is that we think probably the Eucharistic shape of leadership uh, is an answer to seeing the city as a playground. And of course, we draw this down from uh, the life of Christ, the idea here that the Eucharist isn't just a sacrament, uh, something that people access on uh, Saturday or Sunday mm -hmm. uh, on their tradition, but really is, is the very shape of Jesus's life. And so in that, in that Eucharistic shape, there's, there's four movements. And the idea as we think about that is the first is what it means to be taken. Uh, so when Jesus took the bread, um, our leadership in that same way is to be taken. And that is over and against this notion of possessing. Mm -hmm. of somehow leadership is all about possession. The second movement is that as Jesus kind of took the bread, um, he also then blessed it. And uh, we think that, that leadership that is eucharistically shaped uh, is not just taken, but it's blessed. And that really is a fight or an argument against a leadership that's always provisional. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you do these things, then you're okay. And the idea of a blessed leadership is that you can step right into that and, and be who you are just because of, of being God's creation. Mm -hmm. The fourth um, is what we call given. So it's, it's taken blessed and then given yeah, back the third. to the world well yeah. that, that would be the fourth and that was a little bit of backdrop to say that specifically here today what we're going to be doing is talking about the third movement which is what it means to be broken gotcha and that leadership uh, is taken it's blessed but it's also broken and it's this movement to being uh, broken leadership that is oftentimes very counterintuitive uh, something that's very difficult to uh, to kind of get a hold of but it's a it's an antidote to leadership that is always performance based mm -hmm. um right that you're only as good as that last bit of money you just raised that program you created that crowd that you wowed um, this kind of leadership comes back and says no it's about uh, what it means to discover uh, that crack within you mm -hmm. um, that sense that, that ultimately I can't perform well enough to do what's required. And so we think the answer is, is uh, leadership that's broken. Hmm. And you know, uh, we, we get involved in a Whispercast, which is a, a, a short form podcast that introduces um, our, our feature length. And this feature length podcast, we have not only this, uh, this topic of being broken as a leader or brokenness as leadership, uh, but we also have a guest, and so we have Chris Rock here in the in the LF studio. And so, why don't you why don't you introduce Chris? Because you guys go well, back well, a ways. Yeah, and it's important to note that this is the the global world studios. Of yes, Swedish Foundation. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, 
Um, yeah, Chris and I, um, and I'll, uh, of course, have already said more about this in the Whispercast, but just a, a quick introduction. I've had uh, the chance now for close to 30 years uh, to work together uh, in and around uh, really this concept of what it means uh, to see the city as a playground rather than a battleground. We first met uh, in Tacoma, where we were on the Young Life staff together, and then later on, when I was working with the Northwest Leadership Foundation, Chris became our trainer, and now uh, he is a uh, strategic training partner of the Leadership Foundations mm -hmm. uh, and leads a group called Street Psalms. And I think Chris is, uh, and one of the reasons we wanted him to come in, um, he has probably done as much work uh, as anybody I know in terms of what does it mean uh, to think about leadership uh, from really a very different perspective, a Eucharistic perspective. Mm -hmm. um, Chris uh, has, uh, has uh, worked with me in a number of different issues and, and what comes up time and time again is, is this idea about what does it mean to internalize this sense of brokenness and how does that become actually good news mm -hmm. as we are working in tough cities, tough communities around the world. So when you and I put our head together and thought about you know who would be a good interview, a good conversation partner, with this third movement of broken uh, leadership, uh, Chris was on a very, very short list, and so I'm really pleased to have him here to, to talk with. Yeah, so Chris, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's great that you're here, and, and maybe we just back off the, uh, the immediate topic and just kind of uh, uh, look down from above on just the whole idea of leadership. And uh, maybe you could just sort of start off, you know, running in that direction um, that, you know, as you have worked and, uh, and you have your own body of experience, um, why is leadership so important to even talk about? I mean, uh, you know, what, what's your take yeah. on that? Well, maybe some context in terms of the kind of work that we do. Uh, so we kind of have a single focus of developing incarnational leaders and different cities around the world, and that's partly why we're a, a partner, I think, with LF. Um, but we've been doing that for a number of years, and uh, I, I've had an ambivalent relationship to the, to the word leadership, mm -hmm. um, in part because I've, it's taken me a long time personally to kind of catch up to the notion that, in fact, I am a leader, or, in fact, um, somebody else would even call me that. Um, so that's been part of my own personal journey in this. Sure. And that's partly because the notion or the image of leadership um, that I grew up with was, was the idea that somehow you had to be out front. Um, and that if you looked into the rearview mirror, there would be somebody following you. And that wasn't my experience. Um, not that I didn't have some gifts along the way, but I served um, in a context where a lot of folks never felt like they measured up to that definition mm -hmm. of a leader. Um, but if leadership has more to do with calling forth what is already there and the, the, the honed skill over time of being able to see what is actually there and call it forth, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden I could see myself as a leader and I could see the people that I served as leaders. Um, and that was, the, that was the shift for me. So mm -hmm. it really, for me, depends on what we're talking about when we say leadership. If it's, if it's the capacity to see what God is already doing in a given place and call forth um, that, then I'm all in. Yeah, you know, um, I think one of, the, one of the things that this 
conversation about Eucharistic leadership brings up is that, um, you know, that contrast between what we usually think of when we hear the word leader, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. Like I had a, an experience once where we, I took a bunch of college students. Um, I got to go with them on this trip to Argentina. And, uh, and we, we told the guy that was hosting us, hey, when we get there, we're going to play football with you guys. So we brought a football and we were throwing it around the airport and all that. And when we landed there, you know, we made our way in and, and we get this college campus, this big field. And here comes this group of guys and they're kicking a ball. And uh, so when we got together, we said, no, we're going to play football. And they said, yeah, football. You know, and of course, we're the only country in the world that calls it soccer because, you know, there's doesn't make any sense at all you know but but it was so funny because we found ourselves using the exact same word you know they were saying they were like no football and we were saying no football and it was a completely entirely different endeavor and i think that's that's Mm -hmm. what that's what we uh, are are landing on here as well Mm -hmm. that uh, leadership especially as it became uh, an industry Mm -hmm. you know instead of an endeavor uh, it's definitely uh, not what we're talking about when we say incarnational or Eucharistic leadership. Yeah, so. Mm-hmm. There was a, uh, it was probably three years ago, a young man uh, <clears throat> came and said, asked if he could have lunch with me, and I said, sure. And he started off the lunch by asking, um, you know, what, what sage advice do you have now that you're getting a little bit older? Um, I want to be a leader. Long in the tooth. Long yeah. in the tooth, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, and I have to confess, I, I totally blanked out. Like, it was one of those, like, softballs that was supposed to start a conversation. And I had nothing. And I completely blanked. And, uh, and he felt it. I felt it. And so we kind of moved on. And then halfway through the lunch, I said, hey, <laughs> do you think I could get a do-over on your question? Because maybe I do have something uh, to offer. And I said, I think, I think your first task um, in leadership is to fall in love. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he's like, like, with, like, what does that mean? I said, well, I can't tell you who to fall in love with or how to fall in love. I can tell my story. But the first and deepest task of leadership is to first fall in love, fall in love with a city, a place, a group, a community. Um, fall in love with something or mm-hmm. someone or some place. And then when you're in love, come and talk to me. Uh, because there's the second task, I think, of leadership at that point, which is, and it's really hard, uh, but to discipline that love. Mm-hmm. And we call that the kind of principle of beauty before duty. Um, and what I've seen, especially in the city, um, is that's so easy to get reversed, is you you'd feel duty bound to get something done but if you're not fully in love with the community or the context in which you're serving that duty kind of bound leadership is what gets us actually into trouble Mm -hmm. but if you're in love then you can go through the lifelong process of disciplining that love into something that's that's beautiful marriage is no different you fall in love and you spend theoretically a long time trying to work and cultivate that love into something really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And without that, I'm not sure Eucharistic leadership, the way you guys are exploring it, is going to make much sense. Because for me, the Eucharist is the lifelong task of forming and shaping a first love. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I, th- I think when we look at Jesus, the I think the word love is, you know, it's in the text. 
you know, and, uh, you know, I think so. I think you're right. I mean, it, it, to me, it resonates like, you know, that God so loved, yeah. you know, that 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 is the uh, the, the foundation or, or the, the grounding of, of this idea. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, Chris, maybe to build from that, I think it's great that you emphasize that. I think um, the argument has been implicit that, of course, mm. what the Eucharist represents is, is a, a first love. The curious thing, and I think this is what we would love to begin to talk with you about, though, is that even with your statement about fall in love, mm -hmm. you wouldn't necessarily then say, okay, be taken, be blessed, be broken, mm -hmm. and be given. Uh, I think most people who fall in love would say, you know, it's mine. Yeah. I'm going to put it in my back pocket. I'm going to put it under lock and key. Yeah. I will maybe bring it out for a walk every once in a while, but but this whole thing depends on you know my essentially possession of it. So yeah. I think in that sense, and maybe now specifically, as you've thought about Eucharistic leadership, um, what is it that, again, given that it's nurturing a love, though, begins to really yeah. challenge you and begins to make you think, wow, this is uh, maybe taking care of a love in a way that I didn't anticipate. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what I don't know about this is a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you could just keep asking me about things that I don't know, this is going to go really well. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there are are several movements to the Eucharist, right? You're first taken and blessed. Um, and I know we'll get to this broken piece here in a minute, but I, what I want to say is, um, unless it starts with you're taken in love or blessed in love, and I want to actually rephrase the word taken because for some folks that doesn't, that's not a comforting word. Um, to be taken by anything can feel um, even a kind of violence of sorts. But I don't think that's what's meant by the word taken. Maybe if we've reframed it a little bit and imagined the word chosen, um, when you're chosen or even received in love, that's, I think, what Jesus is getting at. Um, but unless we know that we are chosen in that sense and then blessed, it's almost like the double work of falling in love on the front end of the Eucharist, this broken piece is gonna make no sense. Um, and so for me, um, this is, a, the Eucharist is not what I first thought it was. <laughs> Let me start off uh, and go back a little bit. I guess maybe one of the ways I used to think about the Eucharist is, was this is the private meal that was given to us as Christians that would separate and distinguish us from the rest of the world, would separate us out from the world. And the, the further into this process of uh, being formed and shaped Eucharistically, um, the more I'm starting to see that the Eucharist isn't a private meal, it's a public meal. And it's the meal that doesn't separate us from the rest of the world, but it's actually one of those meals that unites us and this is going to go a little bit further, um, and I certainly couldn't have said this 20 years ago, but I can today, and that is, is this. Um, the Eucharist, for me, 
Well, I had a great thought, and it was it was deep. <laughs> um, what I, what what is it that I wanted to say there? Um, yeah, that maybe I'll, I'll rephrase it this way: that the Eucharist um, isn't just the thing that happens to those of us who call ourselves Christian. The Eucharistic shape of life is, in fact, the very shape of existence itself or reality. Now, this now goes beyond kind of the confines of, of us as Christians. What if all of life is being taken in love? What if all of life is being blessed in love? And what if all of life is being broken in love? And what if all of life is being given in love? All of the sudden, this private meal that used to separate me out from the rest of the world is actually the very shape of reality itself. All of the world undergoes this. Um, so this is our sign uh, that unites us um, with the world, all of which is undergoing this very same process if we can only see it. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that helps. Well, I think, uh, I think one, of the, one of the writers that sort of reflects this is you know <clears throat> the concept that um you know it's i think of richard Rohr, you know and some of some of his writings and um others who who talk about the you know the death and resurrection in everything you know yeah. i mean that's that's what they see and that's i think that's part of the i think even a part of the story of jesus if you were if i were going to write the story I'd be like no just forget the death part you know, I mean, just, you know, have them do the miracles. And uh, I like the water and the wine thing. That was great, you know. But then the death, I mean, what? And, uh, and I think that part of that, uh, you know, th that even in, in leadership is that there, there's going to be a willingness to, um, you know, to imperfection mm -hmm. is, is, is part of the thing that doesn't fit in your head, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so in, in that context, um, I'd love to kind of now push us a bit um, more specifically here to this third movement that we have described um, in the Eucharistic shape, and, and that's this idea of broken. Uh, because there's this, a part of you, however you might name taken, uh, maybe it's chosen, what, you know, yeah. it's like most people around the table would sit there and go, yep, I like that. I'm, I'm in for that kind of leadership. And you get to a place like blessed, and again, now there's ways to define that, but you know, if you surveyed people, most would kind of go, yeah. thumbs up, I'm mm -hmm. still good. And now you come to this place where it's, and it's broken. And my experience of this with a lot of people is that this becomes the arresting moment. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't seem like love. Mm -hmm. um, it actually feels a little bit cruel, uh, potentially punishing, uh, certainly violent, and so now people begin to to remove themselves or mm -hmm. come up with a kind of definition that isn't quite what I think uh, Jesus meant uh, when he talked about this idea of, of broken yeah. and, and, of course, his life himself. So how do you think about this third movement, and what, what have you wrestled with, mm -hmm. um, both by way of things you've learned that maybe have pleasantly surprised you that give you hope yeah. and the flip side is maybe where do you find yourself going yeah it's for these reasons that this is still a really tough yeah. thing to grasp 
Well, I think you guys started with the, the notion that you're trying to move um, away from performance-based leadership, um, mm -hmm. which in, assumes that there's a shining star at the end for those who get it right. Um, and, you know, I was, I, I was in a, a gathering not too long ago with a group who was lamenting about the nature of the church and where, where we've gone wrong. And this was a missional group that cares deeply about the church and um, its standing in the world. And people were lamenting that we kind of missed it and we've screwed up. And it's true, everybody around the circle said, yeah, that's right. If we could only get it right, if we would only sort of live into kind of our calling and, and be a shining star for the rest of the world, um, sounds a lot like performance, doesn't it? Um, if we could only get it right, we could regain our identity. Um, and people would once again see the church as this shining model and, uh, and we could recover our footing. Now, I didn't say anything in that gathering, but afterwards I reflected with a smaller group and said, how does that sit with you? Um, if you look at all the indices by which uh, you measure behavior, <laughs> Um, in all cases, we're consistent with the rest of the world. We divorce at the same rate. Um, pick whatever you want. We murder at the same rate. Uh, there's nothing in our behavior that separates us out from the rest of the world as though we're better. And that's an alarming stat, right? That's an alarming reality to have to face. But what if that isn't such bad news? And here's what I mean. What if our identity isn't in us getting it right. What if our identity is simply this, a community of people who publicly undergo forgiveness and the rest of the world knows that this is a community that doesn't get it right and knows that it doesn't get it right, but its identity is that it's undergoing a kind of forgiveness and doing it publicly. Mm -hmm. And if you would like to be a part of a community undergoing forgiveness, there's a wide open door for you at any, at any given church. And I think that's a really important part of understanding this Eucharistic shape, and especially when you get to broken. Because if we haven't really um, understood that that is our identity, uh, we're gonna misunderstand this uh, this part of this movement of the meal when mm -hmm. we get to broken, because we're going to associate it with punishment. Well, maybe just to follow up on that, because I think that's absolutely right. But here's, I think, the difficulty, and I'd love to have you yeah. again peel this back a bit. One way you could interpret this notion of being taken and blessed is I have finally found my identity. Yeah. Right? I'm. I know who I am. And so I'm going to be with people, yeah. right, that yeah. know their identity. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have my grandmothers tell me, you know, you know be careful who you hang out with because that's going to be the, the great determiner of, of, yeah. of who you might be. So you begin to live life on the basis of tribe, right? I mean, my kind. This, this movement, I think, that you just described is that um, it, it, it breaks you in such a way that you have to begin to lose the sense of identity. The mm -hmm. very thing that you thought was this grace. Mm -hmm. What, 
and how do you think about that? Yeah. Because again, you've been a part of enough groups. I know I've been and Rick, where you literally will have a, an organization or a, a situation where you've got all these tribes that have found their identity fighting against the others yeah. around that very sense of, of identity. And, and the movement, I think, is to go, maybe my identity isn't quite as tight or mm -hmm. quite as clear as I thought it was, but that's a really hard thing to let go of when you feel like you just got it or you found it. Well, the good news about this part of the meal, it's gonna happen one way or another. <laughs> There's really no way out of being broken. The only question then becomes, how will you be broken? And what is your response in the midst of that brokenness? Um, what I will say, and, and I think this speaks to what you're saying, Dave, is that the more secure I am in one who is uh, taken and blessed in love, it changes the way I interpret this broken, mm -hmm. right? Um, which is why we spend so much time on the front end of being taken and blessed. Um, Richard Rohr has a great little line that uh, I've thought about and used often, which is, um, if we don't transform our experience of pain, we will transmit it with utter certainty. Um, there's no way around that. So. If I don't have a transforming experience of my own pain and suffering, um, this broken state will actually lead to more brokenness in an unhealthy way. Um, but if I can have an experience that transforms that pain or transforms my own suffering, all of a sudden this becomes the life-giving transition into a new way of being a new kind of identity. Um, and having worked with um, really hurt communities and really broken and vulnerable communities, um, it's no sure thing that just because you're broken are you given to the world in a new way. Because there's a lot of people who are broken and hurt um, who become fused with their wounds. Mm -hmm. And that does nobody any good, right? Mm -hmm. We are not our wounds, but we have no way of knowing that until we've gone through this part of the meal. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where there is a particular way in which Jesus breaks, and it's in and through the love, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a very different kind of broken than what the rest of us have known. Like, I've got all kinds of brokenness in my life, but it wasn't in and through love. Yeah. Yeah, I've even, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I can anticipate you going this way, Chris, that what might be the litmus test uh, of a brokenness, uh, at least in the Eucharistic sense of things. And I think it's Jesus' statement um, where you actually get to a place where you can love your enemy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that is that, you know, whatever else the Eucharist did, uh, it moved Jesus to a place yeah. of literally dying on the cross uh, on behalf of those that absolutely scorned him. And I've watched this in my own life when I've said, well, I kind of feel sort of broken today. And yeah. It's like if Rick said, well, how do you feel broken? I got a little bit of an ache in my hip and, you know, not altogether wild about, you know, myself. 
But if that doesn't actually move me to engage enemy, I mean, love enemy, then it's probably not that yeah. brokenness that at least I think the way you're yeah, thinking about right. it. Yeah, um, that's not a comforting thought that I'm... Uh, <laughs> all, all of a sudden I get to spend the rest of my life loving my enemies um, until or unless, right? You've actually <clears throat> undergone this kind of a breaking. And all of a the sudden, there is no more enemy. Exactly. What we used to call enemy is actually seen as friend. Mm -hmm. And that's the big mystery of this movement of the meal. So you can go through taken and blessed and skip <clears throat> over broken to get to given. Um, and what you'll be given to the world or how you'll be given um, is it hasn't transformed the way you see your enemy. But when you go through this part of the meal, and for some of us, uh, it happens more quickly than others, but for most of us, it takes a long time to get to the place where you're given to the world in a way that there's no more, no more enemies. Mm -hmm. It's all friend. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Chris, this, uh, I mean, this vision, this notion of, uh, living in a world, uh, seeing a world, and thereby living in a world where there are no enemies mm -hmm. um, is a bit breathtaking. And we, uh, of course, in leadership foundations have talked forever about how this idea of seeing the city as a playground rather than a battleground uh, is an absolute game changer. Mm -hmm. And that it changes at three levels. I mean, one is that God becomes a friend rather than a foe of the city, um, and that, that that is significant. And of course, with regard to the economy, it becomes one of abundance rather than scarcity. But this notion sociologically that your neighbor uh, becomes a colleague rather than a competitor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, if, if you are serious about seeing the city as a playground, um, one of the immediate sociological ramifications is this enemy thing um, ceases to be a reality. Yeah. And you can now begin to enter into alliances um, that might scandalize um, yeah. right? your church that's supporting you, or you're able to uh, build an initiative uh, around yeah. you know, whatever the, the social issue might be with um, people of other faiths, uh, people of goodwill, people that you might actually violently disagree with on right. paper, uh, but because you aren't working from that reality anymore, mm -hmm. uh, right? It opens up a whole new way of, of relating. So, yeah, Jesus must have had some reason to uh, insist that Judas stay at the table. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I'm not there yet, right? But. I could. I, I admit that I, I've tasted enough of the Eucharistic shape of life to imagine now why that might be necessary, um, and why I'm incomplete without somebody like Judas. I've been Judas for others. I've been Judas towards myself, if mm -hmm. I'm honest, right? Mm -hmm. um, but all of a sudden, if I no longer need an enemy, um, it's a new way of shaping an identity, and I think that is kind of the great mystery of the Eucharist. It's like, 
what would happen in our cities if we no longer needed an enemy to hate? I don't know that you can get there apart from this movement of the meal, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the great irony, is we, we have a, a phrase sometimes that we use that our wounds are like wombs that bear seeds of new life if we let them, right? Our wounds, things that have hurt us, are like wombs that bear seeds of new life if we let it. Um, that's a counterintuitive kind of move um, that I think Jesus makes available. I think it matches our deepest desire. I think it's something that we all go, yeah, I like that. But without um, the help of a community to be formed and shaped like that, I don't think it just happens. I really don't think it just happens. This is where we need a Eucharistic community, not just individual leaders, Mm -hmm. but a Eucharistic community. that walks with us, especially when we get into the sort of real dark stuff of our own brokenness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's, you know, I don't know if this will make sense, but the, the danger of, of, of this kind of stuff is that we begin to think that we're all just broken in a general way. Um, but until, <laughs> until we discover the specific way in which we are broken, I'm broken differently than you, right? Mm-hmm. We're broken differently than each other. But as long as we keep it at the general sense, um, this doesn't go very deep, um, and it's not very transformative. But when we allow it to get down into the, oh, Chris, you have a very specific way in which you're broken. And here's, here's, here's the key, that that specific way in which we are all broken actually holds the key to our own authority. I really believe that our deepest authority lies um, right at the center of our wound. And that's what's needed in leadership. You know, there's a lot of tips and techniques about how to develop leaders across the city, and there's great seminars, and I've shown up to some of them, and mostly I walk away feeling less than, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that maybe speaks to my own wound. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, when when we get specific about the nature or the way in which we're specifically broken, now we begin to get into the area of real authority which is what is so desperately missing in our city. We've got great ideas, great initiatives. We can build, we've proven that we can build great programs. Um, But I'm not sure that's what our communities are calling for uh, from us most. Um, I don't know, you've seen it, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who has a deep authority, generally speaking, my guess is those are people who are very familiar with the very particular way in which they're wounded. Yeah, I would, I would really agree with that and add this piece. <clears throat> and this is a little bit of James Allison, who we've referenced. You know, James talks about and, and wrestles with the authority of, of the Catholic Church, for example, and what is it and how does it come from Jesus. And his, his argument is that its authority is its ability to reconcile. Mm. Mm. That's it. I mean, there, there's no other reason for authority. And so I think with that addition, Chris, I would say that you're right. I think that wound which left untended, uncultivated, is actually the thing we use to separate ourselves from others. Yeah. And that when you begin to see healing in a wound, again, one of the immediate manifestations of, of its flourishing, its fruitfulness, 
is that you actually find yourself sitting at tables again that you could not have otherwise yeah. imagined yeah, a week ago, yeah. right? So I, I like what you said a lot with, with again, that addition of it, it's what separates us. And I think that's what First, Second, and Third John is essentially mm. all about, right? It's like, it's given, Rick. You, you love God. I, I get it. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Now let's get to the very serious conversation about what does that look like with sister and brother? So. Yeah. yeah, and I think when you, you, you use the word identity, um, kind of, I, I kind of went to, um, last week I had to do this teaching in Galatians, so I had to kind of dust off the letter and figure out, oh yeah, I can't remember what, what's, New, what's New Testament, on. Old yeah. Testament. Yeah, so, and then, but then I start to realize, okay, it's written to this group of churches in this province and all that, and then, but in, in chapter two, you know, it's got this classic uh, Pauline, you know, sort of theology line that's kind of you know, kind of quotable and uh, calendar art. Even it's so amazing. But I've been crucified. I've been cru- crucified with Christ, and I no longer live in the life I now live. Yeah. You know, I live by faith. Well, well. Um, so I thought, well, I'm just going to uh, call some of my smart friends and find out what some of these Greek words are doing here. And so, anyway, one of the interesting- Chris, did you get a call? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't get one either. One so. of the things was is that uh, you know, it's no surprise, but the word I. You know, which is in that verse particularly, is you know, in in uh, in Greek, it's ego, and I think that sometimes mm. the um, you know the the thing that has to get broken, you know, is at the mm. e- it's at that identity level, ego level, you know, and, and yeah. he, even in that letter, you know, Paul was saying, um, I'm like, D- dude, that guy had a pedigree and mm. and everything, but he was just saying, you know, now that person, that sort of constructed leader, that's got all the you know, all the badges yeah. and everything that, that guy was crucified. Mm. Okay. And now that's not the life I'm living. Yeah. And so in some ways, I think that that sort of shines the light on what has to go in order for us to be the kind of leader that the city needs. Yeah. And I don't know where we got this illusion that what, if there's anything broken, it's not the essential true self. God has no interest in breaking, uh, mm-hmm the real you, Rick. Right, right. Um, but we've so confused our identities with this ego, false self, whatever you want to call it, um, so much so that we will do anything to preserve it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even <laughs> if it means f- causing more harm to ourselves or somebody else, because we're terrified without it. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if there's anything being broken, it's not the essential true self at the end of the day. Um, there's not, the true self has nothing left to defend because it's no, it knows it's already taken and blessed. Now, it doesn't mean it won't get hurt um, in the world, um, but, but what we're defending for the most part, um, I'm not even sure I, I would know how to talk about it beyond this, but what we're defending for the most part is this false ego self that it's the only self we know. Mm-hmm. But isn't it also t- true that in, institutionally that a lot of, you know, companies, organizations, you know, uh, they, it's structured to promote sure. someone who is, is, is really flying, you know, the, the self, yeah. you know, that's, that's the constructed self or the false self or the ego. You know, yeah. it's the ego that, so you're thinking, well, I really like what Jesus said, but, you know, the guy with the nice car, you know, Mm -hmm. is not being uh, rewarded for uh, the brokenness, you know. And so I think that, you know, that's something we got to work through, Yeah, you know, shake off. You know, as we kind of begin to close up, Chris, and I think, Rick, building on your comment, 
I think Chris's point about um, how Eucharistic leadership then really is impossible apart from the community. I mean, yeah, to do this by yourself, you know, is it's dead on arrival. Um, to be placed in a community that actually has developed a culture um, around the notion of acknowledging each other's brokenness, uh, even getting to a place of being able to celebrate it, um, that, you know, I think, is really what what this is about. With that as a, a, a bit of a segue, Chris, um, and again, given all of Street Psalms' work around the world uh, in tough communities, and knowing that so many of the leaders you're working with, uh, whether they would call it directly Eucharistic leadership uh, or not, but mm -hmm. are living that out, what what are a couple stories that most encourage you as you? Uh, yeah. We're out there kind of grinding it out and trying to help teach this stuff and talk about this stuff. There are some dramatic stories, but the one that uh, I think I want to share um, is, is remarkable in its um, undramaticness, <laughs> if that's a word, right? So there was, uh, this was probably like five years ago, and um, a young lady who's a pastor in town came and met. And uh, she was new to the area. Uh, she was new to the church. Uh, she'd only been there six months. And she said, hey, Chris, you know, I've been here six months, and um, I've preached everything I know. <laughs> I'm kind of, I don't have anything left to say. It's been six months, and I'm not quite sure where the next sermon is going to come five from. Minutes, five <laughs> months longer than you, though, right, Rick? Yes, that's true. <laughs> I'm kind of impressed with that. Yeah, you like that. Yeah. It's like, wow. And I got this smile because she was just, well, honestly, she was sort of broken in this admission, right? That, like, golly, I'm, I've, I've exhausted <laughs> my repertoire. I've got a long ways to go, and I'm done. And I said, um, I said to her that, well, this is really good news um, because I know a whole bunch of other pastors who uh, who have nothing left to say, <laughs> um, and they're some really close friends. They're really good people. Um, but what you just did in your admission was create some room. And, I, and we began to dream, right? And mm -hmm. I said, gosh, do you use the lectionary? Um, she goes, yeah, that's, that's exactly what we use. And I said, I wonder if there are other pastors in town who use the lectionary um, as a way of determining what they preach on. Um, maybe that would be an easy way for, for you to be around some other folks and think about and dream about and explore the text together in community. I wonder if that might be something um, that you'd like. And she said, I'd love that. And so it was her humility, maybe brokenness is another way to say it, mm -hmm. um, not in a big dramatic kind of broken way, but in a small way, um, which is usually where it starts, right, with all of us. Um, and she took the first step, and I went and, and met with some folks, and sure enough, um, four years later, I think there's probably 15 pastors that meet weekly. Mm. Um, from around the city, from Catholic to Protestant, right of center, left of center, all looking at the same text. Um, out of that has grown a community that is shared deeply, personally, um, vulnerably. Um, out of that has grown a common uh, youth ministry that they, they did together. Uh, some of the churches weren't big enough to have their own youth ministry, and so they worked together. They've gone on retreats together. Um, they're beginning to dream together about larger initiatives. Uh, one of the 
one of the churches that's involved is a St. Leo Parish in town here, and um, they open their pulpit every Good Friday to one of the other pastors that meets, which is n no small thing to have a Protestant come and preach on Good Friday in a Catholic context is about as big as it gets. Mm -hmm. um, some of the walls that uh, historically keep us divided are beginning to, to dissolve, but all through, in and through this friendship, not because we went out and decided to become this great new initiative, right? If somebody said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do exactly everything I just described. It would have been dead on arrival. Nobody would have signed up for it, wouldn't have wanted to do it. But there was this young pastor who had the humility and maybe not even humility, maybe it was just desperate. Doesn't, I, I don't know what her motive was, um, but a small kind of brokenness, not a big one, but a small one. And that little sharing of that brokenness um, opened up all kinds of possibilities. Now there's much more dramatic stories than that, but sometimes the dramatic stories are the thing that get in the way of actually sharing kind of the thing that's kind of right on our doorstep. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that gets that's at great. it. But. That's great, yeah. Well, this has been a, a lovely conversation, Chris. And, um, you know, I think maybe final question, and we can kind of conclude this way. And again, the, the hope here, of course, is that this podcast is really to try to talk a bit about um, what does the city as playground um, kind of look like? Um, what mm -hmm. are some of its dimensions? Uh, what are the ways that we uh, are learning about this? Um, obviously, we know we have a sense that this is right, but you know, so much of that has to now be lived out in real time, real experience. The final question would be, why do you think um, generally Eucharistic leadership is important in order to achieve this kind of vision of a city as a playground? And maybe specifically, mm -hmm. what's the importance of the role of brokenness in light of the city as a playground idea? Yeah, like I, I think I touched on earlier, um, this for me is uh, not the particular shape of being Christian. This is the universal shape of being human. All of creation, right, um, is being taken in love. All of creation is being blessed in love. All of creation is being broken in love. And all of creation is being given in love. Um, so I really, yeah. Kind of believe that, and what happens um, is you want to, you want to get that day. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we pipe in the sound of actual business going on to make it seem like we're we're doing something important. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how. I, I guess what I wanted to say is um, I don't know how somebody genuinely can, uh, with a straight face say that they actually see the city as a playground apart from being shaped and formed like what we just described. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's kind of a cruel image because if you've looked, right, as, as you well know, if you go to some of these places, it looks anything but a playground. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, the only image that you might be able to come up with, the most honest image is it's a battleground and you can't argue out of it. Mm -hmm until you've been shaped Eucharistically. Um, and all of a sudden, I think you can say with a straight face and with, as we talked earlier, with a kind of uh, humble authority that people are 
deeply drawn to and, and is very winsome, which is what, when I think uh, of LF as a movement, um, it's not that there is a kind of winsomeness to this image when it works um, and works really well. People are drawn to this. But when, when we stay at the surface level of the metaphor, um, that's where things can get a little wonky, um, which is why um, I th I'm, that's, which is why you're exploring this Eucharistic shape. Mm -hmm. uh, this is too beautiful and too good of a metaphor not to be taken really, really deeply. Mm -hmm. So, well, that's a, a poetic yeah. conclusion, Rick. Any? Yeah. Well, I I thank you for being here. Thank yeah, you for thank you. Uh, for sharing, and, and we want everyone listening to know that uh, you can add to our conversation by uh, sending us a text or uh, an email in text form to uh, info at leadershipfoundations.org. Uh, so um, we, we uh, look forward to our next conversation, and, uh, and thank you for listening. Yep, thank you. Thank you.